At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. And we're welcoming season two for the Best in Show podcast. I'm joined each and every episode with my lovely co-host, Bryony Smith from Kansas. Bryony, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm feeling a little bit rusty in front of the mic, but I'm ready to get things going again. It's super exciting to be back doing this. I've so missed our weekly chats. Me too. And I know that several of you have as well. We've kind of kept you in a bit of suspense, but hopefully that's coming to an end. Yes, it's definitely coming to an end. We've been talking about this and what we're going to do for season two, and we're going to discuss some of those ideas today. And this is going to be just a chat between Bryony and Alan, like we started off with our very first episode last year. And uh, you can expect, of course, some special guests coming up in episodes to come. But for this one, you just get you just get Bryony and Alan, and we're just going to kind of wing it because it's been a while. And like you said, totally rusty. I'm like, oh, what button do I push to even record? <laughs> but here we go. So, uh, Bryony, what's been going on in, in your life since convention? That was the last time we really were all together. Of course, you and I have been together a couple times recently judging, but um, what what happened after convention with you? Well, um, convention itself was was a whirlwind of awesome. You know, a lot of stuff happened. It was my first year as the chair of the Standards Committee, and um, I, I think we did some really cool things, and the presentations went well. We did end up, because of RHD in Florida, doing two of the presentations after the fact on Zoom, the Tort and Hemi Britannia Petite, and both of those passed, the Tort their second presentation and the Hemi their first. And after that, for me, it was a little bit of a crash. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a lot of work building up to that, and I enjoy it. I enjoy the job. I enjoy the process, but it was nice to get home and breathe. Um, but then I did start a little work on another standards committee project I've been working on, which is archiving a lot of the documents. All of the chairs preceded me, um, kept everything. Nobody threw everything away, which is really awesome. It's never been a, a written rule, but, but everyone knew this was important to the ARBA. I now have in my possession all the documents back to the time that Tex Thomas became chair, which was in 1991. And I'm working on archiving, digitizing, and organizing all of those in order to deliver them to the ARBA library. Super exciting. And I know that that archiving stuff is one of your one of your favorite uh, hobbies as well. 
It's one of those nerd things I was born into. My mom's a librarian. <laughs> yes, we've talked about that before, and, and you were you were very good at it. I, I remember the day that you got all those those the 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 treasure chest, and you you texted me like, "Oh my god, I am about to dive in. I'll see you in June." Basically, you were <laughs> yeah. just going to go full throttle into it and and geek out on it. Super exciting to uh, to hear what you what you dig up in all those archives, and it's really amazing to to hear that text kept such good records. And and like you said, you know, documents weren't thrown away. He he really archived it or, or kept it so that, you know, it could be treasured and, and looked at. Um, and in your role, I mean, it's a huge role to be the standards can be chair. I mean, I, no wonder you have any time for a podcast. I mean, I'm very lucky to be able to do this with you because being the chair of this committee is a volunteer job and you, it's like a full-time job. So um, what are some of the things that you hope to hope to look at in the past when you, when you dive into archives, what does, what does looking at the past help you in your role as the committee chair of the standards committee? Um. Precedent and just the way the job is done. I think honestly, um, when I took over as chair, I got all of the files that Kathy had had. Those were about the most recent 200 COD applications. And just reading through those and archiving those and seeing what went on, it gave me a lot better idea of the role of the committee, the way that decisions are made. I mean, I think honestly, that was the best education I could have received. Um, I talked to several of the former chairs. I mean, everyone has been absolutely, you know, wonderful in answering questions and, you know, digging back into their own, you know, archives, notes and brains, because pretty early on, you do get asked some questions that go way, way back, um, which surprised me. But, but yeah, I think just kind of reading those, you get the committee's notes, you get opinions from various people in the committee. Sometimes there's correspondence from the COD holders in there. So you really see both sides of things. And it gives you a good understanding of what it takes for a presentation to get through, kind of the gravity of it all, and, you know, the multiple perceptions on each side. Um, so I think that was really kind of the best education I got. And I'm looking forward into to digging into that a little bit more. Um Tex kept all of his correspondence and this was this was done on the typewriter back in the day. I mean, oh everything God. was done by letter until the early 2000s. And just, you know, keeping all of that, archiving all of that, it, it's really incredible. That in itself was a huge job. And I'm really looking forward to diving into that. It, it's going to be interesting, I think. Well, and you brought up a good point that he did this all on a typewriter and those documents are on paper. Think about it now when in 30 or 40 years when a standards chair that's your successor goes back and looks at documents. I mean, they're going to be electronic documents at, at that point. And I'm sure you're going to keep great records. You always, you always do, but that that's a, that's a real kind of uh, nod to the times that uh, these are some of the last paper records from, from that committee that will ever be, you know, kept the way they were. Yeah. Um, I do keep, I keep the paper that I have. Um, I carry that around. I took it to me to convention. You know, I get COD applications on paper. We have paper that's there um, at the presentations we're recording on. I keep all of that, um, but I don't, you know, put everything. I don't print everything out. Um, the electronic files I have are thicker um, than the paper files I have. I don't. I don't ever get rid of the paper. I don't have plans to print that out to to fill out those folders, um, even when they go to archiving because the the real meat is going to be in those electronic files. Just a quick question for you personally. I'm getting used to being digital. I mean, yeah, we're both rather young, but you know, we did paper for the good part of our lives. How do you how do you like digital in your own, you know, office compared to paper documents just in general? Um <sighs> You know, I think that's one of the great things about we're we're in that little micro generation, the Xennials. <laughs> yes, we <we've laughs> talked about that. 
Right, where we had analog childhoods and digital adulthoods. There are times when I find it much handier to just grab a folder and look um, at the paper. There are other times I find it much handier to go to, into an electronic file. Um, you know, they're they're nested several layers deep in some places. I, I don't know if someone else is going to understand my filing system, <laughs> you know, at the time when I hand this over. Um, but I, what I like about electronic is that you can easily keep multiple copies of things in multiple places without, again, having to kill trees. Um, so I can keep a folder, say, of all of the presentation records for each convention, and I can just copy those documents into their respective presentation folders. Um, I really like that. That makes things really convenient. I can, you know, easily cut pages out and send them. Um, that I like, you know, and I, I don't have to, you know, kill trees and make copies. Uh, Adobe Acrobat's been my best friend through this. I love Adobe. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, 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 could, I like a little bit of both, um, to be honest. Um, I think, I think what- if we had only electronic records, like during presentation day, that would be at cumbersome at a point. Oh, totally cumbersome. Um, but you must also like the fact that you can pull up records that maybe you didn't think you needed before you left for a, for a convention, um, you know, digitally. It's, it's, it's up there in the cloud, essentially. That's what I love most about this digital era is that, you know, I can have my phone or my laptop and dig up stuff that, you know, because remember convention packing is never fun or going anywhere on a big, you know, <laughs> yeah. judging trip, whatever. And now everything is, oh, I forgot it. Oh, I can just look it up. It's, it's not that hard. It's at your fingertips, basically. Yeah, and it's easy to back it up. Um, so I have everything on an external hard drive that is at home. I routinely back up the active files and like take a copy on a USB drive to my mom's house. Um, to convention, I bring the paper I have, you know, for the active files, but then everything else is on the computer. So I can look up anything. If somebody asks, oh, well, what about this? You know, just type it in. There we are. Yeah, it's super handy. Well, speaking of convention and your role, I uh, got the January, February issue of the Domestic Rabbits recently, and I was diving through it, and I read your article from the Standards Committee, and it was a great one. Um, I loved the introduction about the uh, what we formerly called Gold Dutch. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, you know some of the evolution of that variety? Because I think that it it goes hand in hand with you know kind of the evolution of our of our of your committee, the way we do things in the system, and then how we recognize new breeds and varieties. Sure. Um, so the genesis was this project that Alan Barr started was importing yellow Dutch from the UK. That's what they're called there. They are genetically different than anything we have here. They are a non-extension agouti, but they carry that wideband gene. And that's what gives them that full and complete color on their belly and their stops. So he applied calling them gold because for years and years and years in Dutch, we've gotten rabbits that popped out of grays um, that are non-extension agoutis, and we've called them gold. They don't often have a lot of belly color. They don't carry the wideband gene. So there are some breeders who have been really selectively breeding them and in some cases using really light torts and kind of coming close to something with, you know, consistent belly color, but it's still, you know, light years away from what Alan has. And we did that presentation on Zoom last year and we were able to see the rabbits there, but it's it's a color that doesn't really photograph very well. We learned that when we got to convention um, and we got our hands on them this year and we realized this color is not anywhere in the standard. Um, we knew that it was completely different from what people were calling gold. Sometimes those rabbits were showing up in exhibition and 
they weren't being disqualified as they should have been under the working standard for not having a very clearly discernible stops and undercut. So we we took forever to discuss that. And, and poor Alan, I, <laughs> I can only imagine what he was thinking because we spent a long time on that. Um, the decision to pass the rabbits and their quality came fairly quickly. But then the discussion of color and it was, we don't have this in the standard now. It is not the same as a gold English spot, which is a lighter color. It's not a wide band. They don't have any color in the belly anyway, but it is a lighter color. Um, it was not the same as a golden palomino. They don't have color on the belly. It was not the same as an orange dwarf. They don't have color on the belly. They are not wide bands. Some of our red colors, like a triana, are wide bands, but this rabbit has nowhere near the rufous of a red. It's more intense than a gold spot. So this is really not a color that was represented anywhere in the standard. So we kicked around, you know, what do we do? What do we call this? And, you know, what we told Alan at the time was, we do need to come up with a different name for this. You know, we can take some time to think about it. That's fine. You know, it's not final until that final approval by the ARBA Board of Directors. So Alan came back and said, well, the Pantone shade for this is golden yellow. And we, you know, kind of kicked a few things around. And then we decided, why not go with that? It gives a nod back to the original UK color, as well as the traditional US color. And, you know, as soon as we landed on that, it gave us the ability to really distinguish the two very genetically and phenotypically different colors of Dutch that have been showing up and begin, you know, educating people on that because there's a lot of excitement around this variety, but we want people to be raising rabbits that they actually can show and will be, you know, helpful to them. And I, I was a little worried that people would kind of get discouraged, you know, thinking maybe they had the right thing when they didn't, but I've not seen much of that. Um, I'm seeing and hearing just a lot of excitement about it. You know, people want to get rabbits from Allen. Um, there's another breeder, Jill Pfaff in Oregon, who years ago made some Triana crosses. So she has some rabbits that are also this color with the wide band gene and color on the belly. So people are now just kind of eagerly going and getting those correct rabbits, breeding them to the ones they had, which is, of course, going to increase the genetic diversity and working to make the color what it needs to be. So I was very heartened, I would say, to see you know the enthusiasm and the willingness to kind of change course a little bit and improve toward the ideal. Yeah, totally. And then to incorporate some of those longstanding breeders like Jill um, into the project, because as anyone knows, when you go into a COD and you go to create a new breeder variety, uh, a lot of the effort, of course, is breeding. But the other part is getting people involved and raising them as well, because the new breed or variety is is going to only be as strong as those that are interested in them that continue to to be interested in them. So I think that's, that's really cool stuff. Yeah, it really is. Um, And I see all the time, you know, people posting pictures on Facebook of their babies, and they're really excited. There's a lot of interest and enthusiasm. And it seems maybe even a little more confidence now that they they have more of a direction, Um, which I think is part of an important overarching thing in judging, you know, people can't always win, they can't always get what they want. But we should provide them with direction to get there. Yeah, exactly. That's why education is such a big part of what we do in the ARBA. And um, your committee's also uh, kind of gone through some changes and updated some processes. Do you want to get into some really cool stuff that's going on with how to uh, get CODs going and in that process? Well, the big one is that we, um, we decided to go big or go home and took a very audacious proposal to the board to allow a certain limited number of varieties to be recognized 
without going through the COD process on a vote of the breed specialty club only. It's been a little confusing to people um, because they there's some assumption that it's all you know naturally occurring varieties or you know there's been some um, confusion with semantics over our use of groups. But what this is is that if a breed recognizes black, blue, and chocolate, they can have lilac on a breed club vote. If a breed recognizes chestnut agouti or its equivalent, it has a few names in different breeds. Um, opal and lynx, they can recognize chocolate agouti on a vote. Um, same if they have chestnut agouti or copper in this case, opal and chocolate agouti as a mini satin does, they are eligible to recognize lynx on a vote. They can also complete groups. And by this term, we mean group as in a group of colors that would apply for a COD. So this would be the black, blue, chocolate, lilac versions of a color like tort. So if they recognize only black tort or black and blue tort, and they want to recognize chocolate and lilac tort as well, they can do this on a vote. So the process is that the club must conduct a ballot. Um, It's up to the breed specialty clubs as to how they get this on a ballot and how they conduct the vote. They need to report that to us by September 1st. We develop the standard. So there's, you know, no, no bickering about this. No, you know, it's very slick and clean. We will write the standard. And, and in a lot of cases, it's going to be, you know, very simple, just maybe adding chocolate and lilac to, you know, a couple lines here and there. And then we will present those standards to the board of directors after convention with any other new varieties that have passed the process during convention. And so they'll be on that same timeline for recognition and the ability to show officially. And, um, I know this was met with a lot of excitement on some ends and a little bit of skepticism and um, maybe trepidation about breaking with tradition on the others. But we really felt that this encourages people to breed rabbits that will contribute to existing breeds and varieties. We know that pretty much every breed that has black, blue, and chocolate, but not lilac, chocolate suffers for that because people don't want to get rabbits that they can't show. And our goal is not to open the floodgates and just let anything anyone can produce in on a vote, but to bring in things strategically to prop up what we have now and to promote the quality there. So we will kind of see how that goes. Um, The other side of this is that a breed club is only allowed to vote on these once every five years. So if they vote no, they can't vote again for five years because we're not doing this every year. Um, and the other side of this is because um, some of these varieties that are eligible, such as Lilac Dutch, have an outstanding COD. A yes vote by the breed club to approve will, of course, nullify the COD. The variety will become recognized. A no vote will have no effect on the COD at all. Um, in that case, a COD variety has already been approved by the Dutch club, so it will just go forward and it will need to complete the regular process for recognition. I think it's brilliant. And um, it's going to be... Uh, very well received. I think every everything that I've heard from the shows I've judged since convention, everyone's super pumped about it. And anyone that's been through that COD process knows it's a long and arduous one. And for some of these varieties, like you said, the, where the base color basically is black, blue, chocolate, or lilac, um, you know, these things are are happening already. They've been happening. And as you just said about like chocolate, for example, maybe chocolate tort in, in some breeds, people don't want to breed for them in the past because they didn't want to go through the process or uh, they can't show them. So uh, this really... Uh, opens up a lot of opportunity for um, interest and for, you know, making our, making our standard even more interesting. I hope so. I mean, I was, 
I think um, what really excited me the most was hearing about, you know, I walked through the satin area every day. They were so excited. New breeders to established breeders. I mean, everyone. Um, there have been, you know, articles and statements of support from some extremely well-established and top breeders, you know, recommending this for the reasons that we intended. Not so everything can be put on the table but that so the things we already have can improve, which it just makes my little heart happy because that was our intent all along. So cool. Well, um, I think it's exciting and I can't wait to see the progress. And I, I like what you just said too about it's not going to happen every year. This is a five-year deal. And does that have to do with the standard coming out every five years? Is that what what, what was behind that rationale? No, it doesn't. And the every five years is the club can take however long they want to put it on a ballot and how it gets on their ballot. That's up to them. Um, we're not going to ask them if they want this. You know, if they don't, they don't. Maybe, you know, this could possibly even affect changes of leadership in club, the support for this. Um, but that's just, you know, it can be contentious. It can be divisive. And, you know, if if there's not support for it, then clearly we need to wait a while. You know, we don't need to be doing this every year. Um, so it's, you know, whenever they start, if it were to fail, they cannot, you know, try again for another five years. Of course, at, during that time, anyone who wants to obtain a COD can do that. Um, if the club has voted the variety down, it might be kind of wise to take that, you know, into consideration. Um, but it doesn't preclude anyone from obtaining a COD if that's their wish. Awesome. Well, I'm going to dive back to convention because it was a huge family reunion as we talked about on this podcast and, and breeders talked about both in rabbit and KV for, for many, many months leading up to Indianapolis. And this year at the convention, uh, we actually celebrated the 50th time open best in show was selected. Uh, the first being in 1971 and youth didn't actually pick a best in show at convention until 1977. And a very cool thing happened this year at the convention, a very unique uh, kind of occurrence. And that was open and youth best in show winner was a white French Angora. Open was won by Eric Stewart, of course, and youth was won by uh, Morgan Osterling, both <laughs> residing in Pennsylvania. Now that's also just adds more to this uniqueness. And congratulations to those winners. Now, Brian, I love to quiz you, of course, and I had to do my research <laughs> because you've got the memory and I, I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but Uh-oh. this, this, I, I know, right? you're, you're going to get, you're going to get it. I just know it. So French Angora wins best in show and open and youth this year. How many times do you think in the past that's actually happened since we started picking youth best in show when the open winner and the youth winner were the same breed? Any idea? I'm going to say maybe twice. It's actually four times. Okay. Hey. Yes. Okay. You got me. Okay. Okay. You're going to get this next one. Okay. Which breed do you think most took both? Like the open winner and the youth winner were the same breed. What breed do you think it was? New Zealand. You got that. Okay. <laughs> so the last time this happened when open and youth were won by the same breed was actually in 2000. That was with a New Zealand white, as you just said, open winner was William Guardhouse of Ontario, Canada, and youth was Stephen Cooper of Indiana. Again, both white New Zealands. And in 1991, that was the time before that, that also happened, uh, was won by Satin, both in Open and Youth, Bill and Margot Scott of Connecticut, and Heidi uh, Paschkowitz of Wisconsin, again, Satin winners. 
1986, back to New Zealand. Both Open and Youth were won by, I think it was a white. Open was Bob Schwartz of Ohio, and Youth was won by Sarah Ox of Illinois. And 1978, also a New Zealand. So yeah, New Zealand's are, they, they, take, they take the cake on this one. Open was won by the legendary Fibber McGee and Youth, Kevin Peck of Canada. So to win Open and Youth Best in Show, same breed, it's a rarity. And since 1971, now it's happened a total of five times. Wow. That, yeah, thinking back, it's like, I, I couldn't remember it happening. Um, but yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it, it was, uh, Eric is one of those breeders, you know, you go to convention, you're like, oh man, I wonder who's going to get it this year. And you think there's several that have been knocking on that door. And Eric is definitely one of those. I was, I was even thinking on the way listening to that podcast, like it's going to be his turn soon. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I got to convention and, and, you know, we all feel a certain way about our entry when we, when we were getting ready for convention and, and when we get there and Eric just, and I can't believe he admitted it to me because I just, I just feel it. Like I've got a good one. He, he was really confident about this white doe. He loved her. It was maybe the best one he's ever raised and he was feeling really good going into it. And it's, it's, it's funny. I, I would never say that to anyone because I would just feel like I was cursing myself, but you know, Betty Chu will tell you too, when she won best in show back in the eighties, she said, you know, I just felt it. I just, I just kind of knew. Isn't that, isn't that strange? It is. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. I have never loaded up to any show like satisfied with what I had. <laughs> exactly. Um, there was there was one show years ago, one national show. I thought I had a fairly decent shot, but it turned out about like I thought it would. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. But <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think I would almost you know feel like I was jinxing myself or you know, uh, I don't know. I don't really feel crushing defeat anymore, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I would think I was jinxing myself. I wouldn't want to say that cause I wouldn't want to look like a fool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I, like I, I had a dwarf this year. I was like, Oh, I'm so excited about this one. I only showed two dwarfs that were non Latino. And I'm like, Oh, this is like the, one of the best ones I've ever shown. And pff, it was like 12th place. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I didn't tell anyone I was excited about it because this is how it actually ended up being. Uh, yep. Chris Hayhow with his photographic memory reminded me of a four time best in show winning black buck. I took to the Minneapolis convention. I was really excited about him. You know, everyone was telling me, oh, this is a great one. You know, they did those breed banners. He was on the breed banner. He was 19th place. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> yeah. You had the breed banner? Was That that was the Minnesota convention, right? Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. And he was 19th? <laughs> he 19th. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. I don't have that. I don't have a story that good. <laughs> that, that, that's going to stop it. Um. Well, we had a lot of fun at convention. You and I got to do the open commentary again. It was good to be on stage with you uh, commenting for the for the open best in show. That was a blast. That was actually the highlight of my convention, I think. And I, love always, I always love doing it with you. And uh, we got to see the tribute to the late Doug Hera, which, of course, was really emotional and um, very, very special being back there in Indianapolis in his hometown. And I believe you and I are both judging the Doug Hera Memorial Show in May. Uh, back in Indy, correct? We are. It's occurring on his birthday, which uh, I think he would have liked. He will, and he will definitely be there in spirit. I'm so excited yeah. about that show. So, for those listening, that Doug Hara Memorial Show is going to be in May, and I think it's is it May fourteenth. Yes, it is. Yeah, May fourteenth, and it's going to be in Lebanon, Indiana, and that's going to be the Doug Hara Memorial Show. So, we hope to see lots of people there, and uh, remembering Doug and celebrating the the tradition and the the passion that that he shared for this industry that we all love. Uh, 
youth scholarships. We've got to give a shout out to those because you and I are both uh, former recipients of those. The 2021 ARBA Youth Scholarships were granted at the convention. And uh, as a reminder, those were $1,000 scholarships to graduating high school seniors. This year, Kyle Koss, Brooke Brady, Courtney Larson, and Madison Shiner were recipients of ARB Youth Scholarships. Major congratulations to them. And we want to remind everyone that the uh, deadline for applying for youth scholarships is July 31st of 2022. More information can be found on the ARBA web at arba.net. And you can click on the drop-down banner for youth, and there is a file there with youth scholarship information. So we encourage all graduating high school seniors to apply for those scholarships because a thousand bucks, hey, these day, these day and ages, a thousand bucks goes a long way. Well, it feels like a thousand dollars goes a lot longer now, or it's more meaningful than it did maybe even last year or two years ago. Yeah, it does. Actually, I never won the ARBA scholarship. I never applied. You didn't? No I way. did not. No, I didn't um, know that. I just figured you did. Queen. No, um, I did not because it's for freshman year only. And I had a full ride, believe it or not, vocal music scholarship. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that that's a good excuse to, to not apply for the scholarship. I was a soprano when I had tonsils. You? I didn't know. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you sang? Yeah. I I didn't know this. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. not very well anymore, you know, post-tonsillectomy and, you know, being completely 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 out of practice to anything <laughs> but like the radio <laughs> but <laughs> i can yep. still karaoke one week by the bare naked ladies i we have talked about that we are gonna have to do that <laughs> okay just saying one of these conventions one of those late nights all right let's talk about what we're gonna do for our season two what are our, some of our goals i know i've got some bucket list uh guests on my list and and you do too i think that um for this season two, I think we're going to focus some more on education because that uh, in our first season was, of course, part of a lot of our episodes, but they were probably the most widely received by our listeners. And that was being able to listen to the Best in Show podcast and 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 learn something at the same time. And of course, tell, uh, tell some stories from our legends along the way. Um, so what do you have in mind for, for season two for our, if we're going to give a little teaser to our listeners? Well, a couple of guests that are kind of on my bucket list, um, of course, Tex Thomas. And I would like to interview Cindy Wickheiser as well. She's another Hall of Famer and our first female ARBA president. Um, something I actually came up with when we were in Dalton, Georgia this weekend is I would like to do some education on color breeding. I was talking with some mini satin breeders and, you know, kind of talking about some of the, you know, breeding for colors and some of the, the things that aren't quite as apparent when you're breeding rabbits on paper as you are doing it in the barn. Um, so they gave me a really interesting idea for that. Thank you to the Hart family from North Carolina. Um, so I'd like to figure out how to do an episode on color breeding in real life. I love it. And I'm probably going to have to take notes and mute myself as, as you do that, because color is a big part of what I do. And I still, I'm an animal science major, everyone. I took Scott Williamson's class on color genetics in my undergraduate, and I still don't understand it. So I can't wait. And how about you? What's on your bucket list for this season? So my bucket list of guests, um, I, I just have a few so far, but we're going to get lots more, but uh, including uh, the legendary Jim Hupp, KV uh, extraordinaire, uh, Jan Shop, a KV breeder and uh, celebrated KV breeder from the Netherlands. 
Dr. Stephen Lukvar, who's going to be coming out with the ninth edition of Rabbit Production. He's one of the last rabbit scientists based in the United States. Uh, he's a frequent speaker at RabbitCon. He's just full of information. I, he spoke this year via Zoom at RabbitCon, and I was like, oh my gosh, we've got to get him on the podcast, not only to talk about the new edition, but also... Um, just where he's been in his life. It's it's interesting because he takes rabbits from a totally different perspective than we do from the ARBA side. He takes it from a science side. And then I would love to get uh, some ARBA directors on here and I would love to get Deb Morrison. She's um, finishing her last term as ARBA director from the Midwest. And she's just, she's got a huge heart for, for this association and this industry. Um, and she's always energetic. So I can't wait to talk to her. Oh, that would be fantastic. And she has been a supporter of this podcast from the very beginning. And in fact, has loaned me some historical stuff for the use on this podcast. So I'm looking forward to diving into that too. We will have to include that. Yeah. And on that note, something we did want to mention, it is an election year in the ARBA. Um, There were some petitions going around this weekend. We will be um, electing president and vice president along with some of our directors this year. We wanted to let everyone know that our position on this podcast is to provide information about the process and to remind you to take part in it. It will not be to endorse candidates, to host any sort of forum debate, etc., but simply um, just to remind and inform you about the process, hopefully to answer some questions about some new things coming up in balloting. Um, I know, at least in my position as Standards Committee Chair, it's rather unwise to wade into the middle of it. So that is where we're going to stand this year on the election. You got it. And some really cool stuff happening with the election this year. It's going to be the first time that um, adult ARB members will be able to vote uh, through electronic ballots. So not only will we, it will be a little easier, but uh, hopefully we'll have some more turnout in terms of the number of uh, adult members who actually vote in those elections, because it is very important. It does steer the direction of our association. So having those electronic ballots uh, available to adult members will will hopefully ameliorate that. And if you are reading the current copy of The Domestic Rabbits, you'll see in Eric Stewart's executive director report that he encourages all members to make sure that your email address and contact information is up to date with the ARBA because those ballots will be going electronically. So if you don't have the right email address in there, you're not going to get a ballot. So make sure your contact information is up to date with the ARBA office. And the best way to contact the ARB is not to call, <laughs> as Eric said in his podcast, but it is to email the ARB office. And you can update your contact information or ensure that it is updated by emailing info at ARBA.net. So make sure you do that. That's an excellent reminder. And that will also make sure that your domestic rabbits and other things get to you in a timely manner. Um, and yes, um, it, it is important to vote. If you look at, you know, past elections and see, oh, you know, five or 6,000 people voted, is it really important if I do so? Please go look at the results of the last election. The vice presidential election was decided by about 10 votes. There were 10 votes between the winner and the runner-up in that election. So yes, it absolutely does matter that you cast your ballot. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see this year if if more people vote. And I really do think they will. And it'll also open up a little bit of an ease to our international Arab members to cast ballots because in the past, those, those hard copy ballots that uh, arrive overseas, uh, really across Asia, especially where a lot of our, our new members are, they get there and they sit or they, they just don't get to members and they don't get returned in time to even count because there is a deadline for those, those ballots to be returned. So this year, electronic balloting will allow members from across the world to take part instantly and have their voice heard. 
cool stuff. I love that it's more inclusive. And we will re- be reminding you of this as you know this year progresses. But as always, the best source of information about any candidate is the candidate themselves. You got it. Stay off of Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think you've got um, a listener comment to read, correct? Maybe to end this episode? I do. Yes. Um, Last weekend, we were both out at a show in Bakersfield, California, which was followed by a really fun dinner. Um, After that, I received a message from Jordan Whitby in California. She said, Hi, Bryony. I so wish I had a chance at the show to talk to you, but somehow time ran. I just wanted to let you know how much I thoroughly enjoyed the Best in Show podcast. It has been a saving grace and part of my motivation in the hobby in the last two years I've lost. I'm actually now considering to pursue a judge license now, too. That's all. Just wanted to let you know and express my appreciation. We love that. Thank you, Jordan, for that. And uh, she actually told me privately that she works out to the podcast, which I just, <laughs> I, I about lost it. I was judging. I think I was judging Hall Lops when she told me. And I was like, you do what? You work out to the, the passage of <laughs> podcast? Whatever it takes, girl. <laughs> More power to you. I, I don't think I could work out to it. <laughs> No, but that's awesome. I mean, that's that's kind of why we started it to to fill a void and to, you know, help bridge people over the gap of not being able to be together. So that's it's special to hear that. Thank you, Jordan. No kidding. And she comes from a part of California that's been consistently plagued with the RHD virus. And uh, just when the pandemic lifted and we had shows going back, that part of California, which is in the southern part, kept getting, you know, turned off from shows and the Bakersfield show, which you and I judged two weeks ago. That was one of the first shows. Actually, I think it was the first Albright show that Kern County has had in, in a couple of years. So uh, we're glad that this podcast, Jordan and others that have listened, have have you kept you motivated and kept you breeding and inspiring, aspiring to, to do bigger and better things like getting those judge licenses. So congrats. And we would love to hear other comments from our listeners as we dive into season two. We want to remind everyone that you can email us at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Uh, with your comments and we read those every episode and also to follow us on Facebook. We still have the rabbitry page that will continue to serve as our hub for the best in show podcast. So look up the rabbitry on Facebook, like follow, share it so that everyone can find us and listen to current episodes and all of those episodes from season one, they're still out there. They're forever and ever archived on the web. And you can find us through Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Audible, whatever it is, we're on it. So you will find Best in Show Podcast. And those links to those previous episodes are also on the Rabbitry page on Facebook. So please, please, please like and follow it. And your ratings, your five-star ratings, we love, (laughs) also help us to, you know, kind of get our exposure out there. So on those platforms that you listen to our Best in Show Podcast, please do give us a five-star, drop your comments. We find them. We love them. It warms our hearts, keeps us going. And we'll inspire uh, episodes to come for season two and farther. So, Bryony, with that said, you want to take us away? Until next time, talk rabbits and talk cavies. See you next time. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.